Our scripture reading tonight comes from the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. And this evening we come to the last verse of Hebrews chapter 2. And since it's been some time since we've been in Hebrews, and perhaps not everyone has been here during the series of sermons through Hebrews chapter 2, I'll remind you that as we come to Hebrews chapter 2, especially from verse 8 to the end of the chapter, there, is, there are two questions that are being raised as people object to the sufficiency and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. One of those questions is, why did God become man? And the second question is, why did Jesus have to die? And as we studied from verse 10 on through verse 17, we saw that there was at least seven reasons, and that was one that Jesus might taste death for every one of his children. The second was so that he would be the captain of salvation. The third was that he might be a perfect mediator. The fourth, that he might call those for whom he died brethren. The fifth, that he might destroy the devil. The sixth, that he might set the prisoner free. And the seventh, that he might make propitiation for the sins of his people. Well, the question that comes to us at the end from all of these glorious truths of our Savior is how does he help me today? And we touched on it briefly in verse 17, or I think it was verse 16, that he gives aid. But we touched on it explicitly at the end. He gives aid to the tempted. And that's our focus tonight at aid for the tempted. So let's read this portion of scripture. I'll begin in verse 10 for the context. We'll read through verse 18, and verse 18 is our text. Hear now the word of the Lord. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I in the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord our God, your word has been read. Now we ask that you would send your spirit among us that we might understand that which we've read, that we might believe that which you are proclaiming to us, and that we might rest in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation that is promised through your blood. Please grant us ears to hear 
eyes to see and lives to live for the glory of God, even through this portion of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, as we open up God's word, temptation is knocking at the door. Driving home tonight, you will be tempted to covet things on the billboards that you see. You deserve it, some of them will tell you. Turning on your phone, perhaps after the worship service, young and old might be tempted to look at those things that God tells us not to look at. Pornography, images of people that we ought not to see, in order that we might lust after them, which God says not to do, and that it actually destroys the soul. Sitting in your home at times this week, you will be tempted to laziness, to not use your time well, to not number the days that God has given to you. Temptation is all around, constantly fiery darts coming from the evil one against us. And one of two things will happen as those darts fly. They will either be resisted or they will be given into. They will either be deflected with the shield of faith or they will pierce the body of the one who is tempted. Tonight we are called to consider temptation in general, but very particularly, how does God give aid to his children, his many sons who are tempted? And in order to consider that together, we need to have some foundational principles about temptation itself in order to go on to the further things of this text, because this text is talking to us about temptation. There are many ways that the scripture refers to temptation and that translators will translate different words with the word temptation. Sometimes temptation in the scripture just means test, but here it does, it does not mean test. Here is the sense of temptation to sin, and I want us first to consider a definition for temptation so we understand what is being spoken of here. John Owen, who I've referenced before because of his extended commentary on the book of Hebrews, he defined temptation in this way, a temptation in general is anything that for any reason exerts a force or influence to seduce and draw the mind and heart of man from the obedience which God requires of him to any kind of sin. Now, I, I realize that's a lot to hear. That's a long sentence. I think we can summarize temptation as a definition in this way. It is the author, it is the author to contradict, break, or otherwise disobey the Word of God. Temptation is the author to contradict, break, or otherwise disobey the Word of God. It is not the want to break God's Word. And I want to be extremely clear on this point. The desire or the want to break God's word is not temptation. It is sin. And at this time in the church, history of the church, these categories are terribly confused to the destruction of souls. The want of sin, the desire to break God's word is itself sin. 
We pass from temptation to sin when we move from the offer to sin to the desire to sin. Please understand this difference and this contrast. One is someone or something offering you something that's contradictory to God's word. That's temptation. When in your mind you desire what is contrary to God's word, that's sin. Two different things. A person who does not do the homosexual act, but desires the homosexual act, is in fact in sin already. The desire to break God's word is not temptation, it is sin. The man, think of the Sermon on the Mount, who desires to commit adultery with a woman, though he has not committed the physical act of adultery, has committed adultery already in his heart. The one who says to his brother, thou fool, or raka, is in danger of hellfire already because he has murdered, not with his hands, but he's murdered in his heart. The desire to break God's word is itself sin. The offer to contradict, break, or otherwise disobey the word of God is temptation. When the scripture, the scripture shows us some examples of this, In Proverbs chapter 1, the Lord says, when sinners come to you and they say, come with us, let's lie in wait to shed innocent blood, there's the offer. Right after God says, do not go with them. Resist the temptation and it will flee from you. Maybe to put it in some of our own experiences, especially if you're a younger person or you remember college days, or maybe it's even days right now in the business world, when the friend says, come with us, let's go get drunk, let's go drink in excess, let's go to a bar for a very long time, or maybe let's get high. There's the offer. Temptation knocks at the door. Don't go with them. Resist the offer. Resist the temptation. The devil says, come, let's deny the authority of God and his word. Here's the offer. Forsake it. The devil came to Eve with that denial of the word of God as we considered this morning and she did violence with her husband Adam to God and to his word by disobeying him. Sin has entered as soon as we desire the thing offered. Remember what the shorter catechism says. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Brothers and sisters, without this distinction, between temptation and sin that takes place within us on a daily basis, we will end up terribly confused or worse. But where does temptation come from? This is a second foundational principle to this text. Where does it come from? Well, the scripture shows us that it comes from several places. It it comes from the desires of the heart. I think this is particularly true before a person is regenerate, though they still have those remnants of the old man after they're regenerate. But Jeremiah in the 17th chapter, in the 9th verse, and the 10th verse, he says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Temptation rises up from that sin nature that is upon all men because of Adam's fall. And that sin nature tempts us to do wicked and terrible things, even telling us it's good and deceiving us. I've spoken of it many times, I know, in Sunday school, how the whole message of the world 
is to follow your heart. There are songs about it. There are movies about it. There are billboards about it. Everywhere you go, there is the message, follow your heart. God says, don't follow your heart. It's deceitful. It's desperately wicked. And he alone knows just how deceitful and wicked it is. Their temptations come from the heart, but they also come from the lusts of the flesh. And maybe this isn't so much a distinction as, as much as it is an expansion on the heart, but it comes from the lust of the flesh. And consider James, in the very first chapter, He says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The lusts of the flesh come knocking at the door, just as we saw this morning with Cain. Cain's sin is knocking at the door, God told him. You need to have control over it. Don't do it. As temptation comes knocking at the door from our own flesh and our own lust, the Lord is calling out to us, don't do it. But the second place that temptation comes from is the devil himself. Perhaps the one, that's the one that everyone thinks of, and perhaps it's the one that we blame everything for, but God doesn't blame everything for it. It also comes from the heart, but the devil does himself go around as the tempter seeking to destroy. In 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5, the devil is called the tempter. It's one of his titles. He is known for tempting. And in Matthew chapter 4, which came up in Sunday school today when our brother mentioned it in one of the answers, we have there in in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4 the temptations of Jesus Christ in the wilderness by the devil. The devil tempted Jesus. The devil went to him and tempted him, and the devil goes about seeking to tempt others, and his demons do exactly the same thing. But then temptation also comes from the world. The world tempts us. We read the whole chapter of Genesis 39 where Joseph was in Potiphar's house. And there, Potiphar's wife set her eyes on Joseph and wanted him to commit adultery, tempting him always over a long period of time. And all the while he resisted. The world tempts. Judas was tempted by that silver that was offered to him by the priests and the Levites so that he would deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, was tempted by the garments and the gold and the silver offered by Naaman, and he lied, and he followed the lust of his flesh to go after the things of the world. He did not resist it. That's where temptation comes from, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But here's a third foundational concept that we need to address, and that is answering this question, does God tempt? And we read it a moment ago from James, where in that first chapter, James tells us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted, or God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone There's a common misconception 
for a variety of reasons, and it is that God tempts his people. He can't do it. He cannot do so. Well, God is sovereign, people say. So the lusts of my flesh and my unbelief must be his fault. Blasphemy, God says. Let no one say that God tempts anyone. Too many times people use the sovereignty of God as an excuse for sin. If he didn't want me to get drunk, he wouldn't make alcohol. If he didn't want me to pursue homosexuality or transgenderism or any number of other sins, he wouldn't have made me this way, blaming God for the sin and the lusts of our flesh. If he didn't want me to get high, he wouldn't have allowed these narcotics to be made. It's almost like saying if God didn't want us to commit adultery, he wouldn't have made women. Foolishness, folly, blaming God, the holy, harmless, undefiled, the one that is to be feared, the one who knows no sin. He does not tempt people, nor can he be tempted. God does test his people. He tested Abraham on Mount Moriah with his son Isaac. He tested Peter when he told Peter to come out and walk on the water. He tested his disciples when he said, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? He does test his people, seeing where their allegiance is. Is there allegiance with the world, the flesh, and the devil? Or is there allegiance with the king of kings? These are foundational concepts as we come to this 18th verse and unpack its wonderful meaning for us. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. We must ask this question then in the first place. How was our high priest tempted? Well, we see throughout Christ's life that he was tempted. Nowhere more clearly than when the devil comes to him tempting him. In Luke chapter 4, for example, one of the places that we see the temptations, the devil comes to him and he, he tempts him and he says, here's a stone, Jesus, turn it into bread. You've been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Turn this stone into bread and eat it. And Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil takes Jesus up into a high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and he says, bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He then brought him to the top of the pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself down. And Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Oh, there were various things that would tempt him. Offers to break God's word that came at Jesus throughout his ministry, just like Satan himself in the wilderness. Even his own disciples tempted him. You remember in that 16th chapter of Matthew, as shortly after Peter had just said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus had said, You have said, Well, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the kingdom of hell shall not prevail against it. We read in verse 21 of that chapter that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And then Peter took him aside 
and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Here was what Peter was tempting him with trying to help him escape the very thing for which Jesus came, which was to die on the cross for sinners and rise again the third day. Jesus was tempted. But how did he resist that temptation? How did Jesus resist the fiery darts of the evil one, the offers of the world to contradict and break even his own word? He always, always, always used the word of God. The word of God was his powerful sword, sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, we are hearing things, not as much as in times past, but occasionally you hear things about famines in other places of the world. If you go to times of great war, like during World War II, when you had the huge famines in Ukraine and in parts of China and, and other parts of the world hungered as well, and many people have died from famine throughout the history of the world. But there's a famine more deadly than the starvation from food. It's what the prophet Amos calls the famine, not of food, but a famine of the word of God. And I say that's more deadly than the famine of food because a Christian could theoretically die of a famine, and I'm sure Christians have died of famine, and yet they would be in eternity forever with the Lord Jesus, eating at the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a blessed place for the Christian. But if they've had a famine of the word of God, they know not the Savior who's revealed in the word, and if they die in their unbelief and die from lack of knowledge as the prophets cried out, then they have eternal destruction. A much worse famine is the famine of the word of God than a famine from food. We're in a time today where there has never been more ways to read to hear the word of God than we have today. You can have it spoken to you from your phone. You can read it in any number of translations in your house. You can can have verses pop up on your phone telling you to memorize them. People send us scripture, and yet, and yet, how valued is the word of God today? How many people are actually reading the word of God? It it doesn't matter if you say you value it. That's not what I mean. Nearly everybody says they value the Word of God. But are you actually reading the Word of God? You can say you value it, but if you don't read it, you actually are deceiving yourself. It's another temptation. You're deceiving yourself because you're not actually reading the thing that is so valuable. Jesus always uses the Word of God to resist temptation, or I should put it in the past tense, he used the word of God to resist temptation as he walked among us on this earth. Temptation comes, and people don't know how to resist it because they don't know the word. They believe the lie that they hear. They say, as many of you have heard, I can have an abortion and I'm a Christian because God forgives me. They look at pornography and they say, God understands it. It's okay. I'm not doing the deed. I'm just looking. Friends, if the word of God can do one thing tonight, may it run in between you and temptation. 
May you read that word, hide it in your heart. As the psalmist said, the words have I, your words have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is the only way, or it's one of the only ways that we resist temptation. It's through the word of God. It's one of the chief reasons God gave us his word, that we might know him, that we might know the truth, that the truth might set us free. But how few are reading the word of God? But there's a second remedy that the Lord Jesus used to resist temptation, and that was prayer. He used the word, and he prayed. Jesus in the garden, perhaps one of the best accounts of Jesus praying as he thinks about what's coming. The thing for which he came to earth is about to come upon him, his suffering and his death on the cross and he, he eats with his disciples, then he goes out to the garden and he, he says, I will go over and pray. And you remember his disciples keep falling asleep. They won't pray with him for one hour. And he is in deep agony. He's sweating drops of blood. And the second time he goes off to pray, and that's not enough, the third time he goes off to pray. He's praying all the night long until his capture at the hands of wicked men led by that betrayer Judas. Praying as the trial was coming. A few moments ago, we quoted from Matthew chapter 6, even as we closed the pastoral prayer, and we prayed like this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God is not tricking us with that petition. He wants us to pray that because he is the God that actually does deliver us from temptation and evil. How often do you pray that sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. Now, as Jesus uses the word and as he prays to resist temptation, he suffers. And I want to consider, as the text says, that Jesus himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. What does it mean that Jesus suffered being tempted? It means this that he resisted the temptation. The suffering of Christ in temptation was the resisting it. Many people have provoked God to wrath by thinking he wants to help them in their sin. No, he comes to help people in their temptation. He himself suffered resisting the temptation. When someone offers you something like an, an easy example, drugs to take. It's not suffering to take it. It's suffering to resist it. Maybe the desires of the flesh want it. The fighting against the flesh is to resist it. That's where the suffering is. Taking it is sin. When the tempter comes to you on the internet or laziness at work or whatever it might be and you do not resist, you are not suffering. You are not following in the footsteps of Jesus. He said his disciples follow him. He suffered in that he was tempted, and as he was tempted, he resisted the temptation. And so we are only suffering like Christ if we resist the temptation. Giving into the flesh is just sin. You're feeding the flesh. That's not suffering. That's what it means to put the flesh to death. To die unto sin is to resist temptation. Jesus himself suffered being tempted. 
He resisted the temptation and he calls us to resist temptation. If I may prod a little bit further into something that has been on our minds over the last few years, if a government says, shut down your church, stop worshiping God, we don't know when you'll tell, we'll tell you to go back in and worship God. Doing that is not suffering. Doing that is giving in to temptation. We ought not give in to temptation but resist temptation, fear the Lord rather than man, submit ourselves to God, and the devil will flee from us. Brothers and sisters, if if you see yourself as you examine your lives tonight, and as you consider temptation and sin in your own life, and you don't see any resistance of temptation ever, if you only see guilt for sin because of how it makes you feel rather than because it's against the holy, holy, holy God. If you know it's wrong and you keep doing it over and over and over again, there's a very good chance that God is warning you from Scripture here, you're not a Christian. Now that sounds like it might be very harsh. Who is that man to say, I'm not a Christian? But Jesus says Christians, Christians resist temptation. Maybe not every time, certainly not every time. We still sin, and whoever says he doesn't sin is a liar. So if I ever tell you I am not a sinner, I am a liar and the chief of them. But the Christian is one to whom Christ has come and and done this, that Christ came to sinners and he died to deliver them from the curse of sin. And he's done that, and many people, when they think about the work of Christ, they stop there. They say, he died for me, the curse of sin is removed, but because they stop there, they know not that they are to have holy lives, and the Lord said, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. The work of Christ in regeneration, when he gave us that new birth, it didn't stop with a deliverance from the curse of sin. He did do that, but he did so much more than that. He also delivers his people from the power of sin. So that that thing which ruled over them no longer rules over them. He delivers from the realm of sin. So we who were captivity to Satan are delivered from captivity to Satan. We who were slaves to fear and the fear of death in particular are delivered from the fear of death. When Christ takes a man, takes a woman, takes a child who's dead in their sins and unrighteousness, he makes the whole person alive. Body and soul, all things are to become new. If you don't see any resistance of temptation, do not give yourself false comforts, but cry out to the merciful God for mercy and plead with him for everlasting life. For all who seek the Lord will be found, and he says and tells you, seek him. Seek the Lord. The whole church in some ways, I shouldn't say the whole church, large portions of the church in some ways have gone soft on sin. They've given false hope to people that are living in sin. And as they've done that, they've caused many people to not go to the Savior of sinners, but to look at their sin-stained hearts and to say it is well with my soul. Having a form of godliness 
so many deny the power of God. But our God, who has revealed himself in his word, he is the one who had all these temptations like us come against him, and yet he never sinned once. Our God is the God that took murderers like Saul and made him to be a pastor who wrote most of the books of the New Testament. That's the power of God that we're speaking of tonight. He's the one that took a child-murdering king who offered his children in the flames of Molech's fire, King Manasseh, and he converted him and brought him to repentance, and he who bowed down to idols burnt the idols. That's the power of God that we're speaking of here, who has power to give aid, who succors the tempted in their temptation. He's the powerful God. And so many are in churches, probably not tonight, because they almost all have their church doors shut at night. And they're in churches where there is a visual representation of godliness, but the power of God is denied. They tell the person that's struggling with pornography, it's not a big deal. The one who is falling into homosexuality, you're already there, you're always going to be like that. That is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's a denial of the power of God. Our God is powerful to save the sinner and he saves the whole sinner and he gives to that sinner everlasting life. Will they be tempted Yes, the fiery darts will come. Will sometimes we be tempted, tried, and as the hymn writer says, sometimes failing? Yes. But there is power in the one who is born again to resist it because Christ is in him, and he is in Christ, and the one who has Christ can't help but have the power of God in him and resist many of those fiery darts. How does God give aid? Well, he suckers as the scripture says, or he aids those who are tempted. This does not mean that he is sympathetic to sin. We must say that again. Don't read this the wrong way. He is not sympathetic to sin. Quite the opposite. He is showing us that he has the power and gives the power to help sinners to resist. He draws near to his people. And he offers them a way of escape. What we're seeing here as our high priest is revealed in this powerful way at the end of the chapter is that Christ is, is both competent to aid in temptation and he's ready to aid in temptation. He's competent, that means he's fit, he's able to aid a man in his temptation. This gets back to the very nature of God and the very person of Christ. In Numbers 11 verse 23 the Lord says, is the Lord's hand waxed short? Is there something that God the Lord cannot do? Do you think that tonight? That there is something that God is unable to do? Is he not able to help you when you're tempted? Or Jeremiah 32 and verse 27, is there anything too hard for me? Another rhetorical question showing us the grandeur and the power and the might of God. This morning we talked something of the omniscience of God. He's all-knowing. Tonight you're coming face-to-face -face with the omnipotence of God. He's all-powerful. Jesus asked that man who came for his sick daughter, 
Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Christ is competent to aid the tempted. But more than that, he's willing. Many people are competent to do things and they won't do it. But God is both competent and willing to aid. He's the captain of salvation. He aids his children as they go through the fight of this life. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He protects you, though Satan wishes to sift you like Satan wished to sift Peter. God does not allow that for his children, but in every temptation, God provides a way of escape. Here is the word coming to bear that God is faithful to his promises. Your temptation is not unique. That's another lie of the wicked one. He goes to the person and tells them that the temptation they have is the worst possible temptation. Nobody else has it. God is too weak to deliver them from it. A lie of the wicked one. Nobody has a temptation that's altogether unique to them. Many are tempted in the same way. Temptation is real. Temptation is frequent, and the Christian is able to overcome that temptation in Christ Jesus. This is the dividing line between Christianity on the one hand and liberalism and modern liberalism on the other. Is God able to deliver? And we say most assuredly with Scripture, God is able. God gives aid to the tempted. He himself suffered being tempted, and therefore he is able to aid his children who are tempted. Anyone who says otherwise needs to be accounted to be a false teacher. Because a form of godliness without the power of God is dead. It's not godliness at all. Well, let's put this all together then. Our great high priest aids the tempted How then do we resist with his help? Turn, if you would, to James chapter 4. These final exhortations concerning Hebrews chapter 2 will come from there. In the three or four verses of James 4, verse... James 4, 6, 7, and 8. If we're going to resist temptation with the help of the Lord, we must first humble ourselves before God. Verse 6 of James 4, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here is the first thing, humility before God. He is almighty God. We are wretched sinners. We are but a worm, but dust before him. He's the one that stretched out the heavens like a span He's the one that spoke and all things came into existence. Who are we to stand before him? But by the grace of God, we would all be as nothing. But he gives air to breathe, food and water to eat and to drink, because he's a merciful God. We must humble ourselves before him. And in humbling ourselves, we are on the way to resisting the fiery darts of the wicked one. Consider one portion of Scripture with me as an example of this, and it's six verses. You may wish to turn there. It's the book of Jonah. 
Jonah chapter 3. I trust many of you know this account. In the fifth verse, after Jonah has gone through with that message, yet in 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed, and that's the end of the sermon. We read this. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? They humbled themselves before the Lord. And the Lord spared them 120,000 souls and much cattle. They humbled themselves. James goes on from humbling ourselves before God. He says in verse 7, Therefore, submit to God. Submit to God, brothers and sisters, that we are his and he is ours and the word of the Lord is good and what God has said, we will do. We must entirely give ourselves to the Lord. We cannot hold anything back. Our love must be to the Lord God above all else. If a person loves son or daughter, husband or wife, anybody more than they love God, they're not worthy of the Lord Jesus. Even our earthly possessions, if you love house or money or other of the world's treasures more than the Lord, you're not worthy of Him. But the Lord says, Further, that we are to be hearers of the word and doers of it. Which part? All of it. All of the word of God is true. Do we believe that tonight? All of the word of God is to be submitted to. All that God has said is good. Has the world died to you tonight? Have you died to the world? Paul said that when he came to faith in Christ at the end of Galatians in chapter 6, he said that, all the world has died to him, he's died to the world, and now he boasts in one thing, and it's not his earthly possessions or gain, he boasts in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Check your heart tonight. What is your greatest joy? What is your greatest strength? Is it the Lord and his cross? Is it the Lord and his salvation? I don't mean a physical cross. I mean what is represented in the work of God at the cross that there his body was broken open and his blood shed, that, Christ, that children who were perishing might be saved and washed in his blood. Is that your boast tonight? Or is it in something else? Is it in something you have? Is it in loved ones? Ask yourself this question. Your wife, your grandparent, your cousin, it doesn't matter the relationship. If they are going to tell you, come with us Sunday night. We're going to go do something else. Go somewhere else that's good on any of the other weeks. But you're going to miss church and come with us. What are you going to do? Are you going to love God or love your family? Are you going to resist the devil? Are you going to submit yourself 
to God. When Jesus asked his disciples if they would leave him, like many others left him, they turned to him and said, where else will we go? You have the words of everlasting life. Follow me. We humble ourselves before God. We submit ourselves to God. And it's after those two things happen, then the rest of verse 7 comes, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's no resisting if we haven't submitted ourselves to God. It's impossible. Because even if we've read his word, we won't keep his word. Cannot resist the devil if you haven't humbled yourselves to God and submitted yourselves to him. That is, if you haven't confessed your sins to the Lord and put your trust in him alone for salvation, you cannot resist the devil. He will break through every time, and though you feel guilt, though you feel shame, though you feel sorrow, you'll get up, and as Proverbs says, you'll seek it yet again. Over and over the cycle comes, because people try to resist the devil without submitting to God. Impossible. Impossible. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I will not look upon a maid to lust after her. God has said, do not be drunk with wine. Will you say, I will not live by drunkenness, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? When it's offered, when the devil comes offering for you to break his word, will you resist with that word of God, even as Jesus did? The Lord's days here. Skip church, go to Starbucks, travel for the day. Vacation, it is written. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. I don't think anyone here has resisted unto blood. Jesus resisted temptation even unto blood. As he prayed, great drops of blood came out like sweat. He suffered in his resisting temptation. We will suffer if we love Christ. But what is that in comparison to the joys of the Lord for all eternity? Humble ourselves, submit ourselves, resist the devil, and then James 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here you are drawing near to God in worship tonight. Continue drawing near to God, never leave him. Love him. Stay close to him and the love of God will constrain you to serve him. He came into the world of sinners in the form of a sinful man, yet he never sinned so that he might taste death, that he might destroy the works of the devil, that he might break the chains of reigning sin, that he might be a propitiation for his children. What love is that? What a great high priest we have. Not just for the future, though we have him for the future, but for today. For the temptations that come tomorrow, we have the high priest who suffered and is able then to help us when we are tempted. Let us come to the Lord humbly, submitting ourselves to every word of his, resisting the devil, and he will surely flee from us. And then we will see and confess to one another, not only is he able to aid those who are tempted, but he has aided me when I was tempted. Is that your confession today? Brothers and sisters, only a Christian can make that profession. Only a Christian is aided by the Lord. 
He brings many sons to glory, not every child. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. And then he will come back and you will resist him again. And again and again. Until that time that the Lord shall call you home. And as you stand before his glorious throne, he will look at the one who suffered in temptation by resisting it with the power of God that was in him. And he will say those glorious words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's resist the devil and see him flee from us. Amen. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you so much for your powerful word. That though we read pages that can be burned up in a fire, we read from books that can be lost and forgotten, yet your word is alive and it prevails. Over the centuries, many have sought to destroy your word, to discredit your word, and yet here we are, reading your word and cherishing it. Our Father, we ask that you would cause your word to dwell in us, that it might be our food day and night, that we might not just have it near, but we might have it in our very hearts, and that you who died on the cross for our sins might give us the aid that you have promised to be able to resist temptation and flee from it. We plead with you for any that are here tonight who have not put their trust in Christ, who are not resisting the devil, that you would cause them to humble themselves before the Lord, to submit themselves to God, and to see your hand at work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.